Let us clasp our hands together. Let us interlock our fingers. Let us sing a cheerful measure. Let us use our best endeavors, and recall our songs and legends of the belt of Vaina Moinen, of the forge of Ilmarinen, and of Kaukomieli's sword point. Now the bread they baked was ready, and were stirred the pots of porridge, and a little time passed over, when the ale worked in the barrels, and the beer foamed in the cellars. Now must someone come to drink me. Now must someone come to taste me, that my fame may be reported, and that they may sing my praises. Then they went to seek a minstrel, went to seek a famous singer, one whose voice was of the strongest, one who knew the finest legends. First to sing, they tried a salmon. If the voice of trout was strongest, singing is not work for salmon, and the pike recites no legends. Crooked are the jaws of salmon, and the teeth of pike spread widely. Yet again they sought a singer, went to seek a famous singer, one whose voice was of the strongest, one who knew the finest legends. And they took a child for singer, thought a boy might sing the strongest. Singing is not work for children, nor a splutterer's fit for shouting. Crooked are the tongues of children. And the roofs thereof are crooked. Then the red ale grew indignant, and the fresh drink fell to cursing, pent within the oaken barrels and behind the taps of copper. If you do not find a minstrel, do not find a famous singer, one whose voice is of the strongest, one who knows the finest legends. Then the hoops I'll burst asunder, and amongst the dust will trickle. Let us clasp our hands together. Let us interlock our fingers. Let us sing a cheerful measure. Let us use our best endeavors. Welcome to the Bibliophiles Labyrinth Adventure. I'm Michael from Germany, known on Twitter as Sos the Rope, and I've been reading to you from a few quotes from the Kalevala. It's the Finnish national epic,、um, and especially the part about beer. <laughs> so,、uh, this is quoted in the story of Kalevo, which is the book I'd like to talk about today. It's a retelling of the story of Kalevo, son of Kalevan,、uh, from the Kalevala, and it's retold, rewritten by. Mr. J.R.R. Tolkien, who's better known as the author of *The Hobbit*,、uh, *The Lord of the Rings*, somewhat lesser known as the author of *The Silmarillion*, and still lesser known as the author of many unfinished works,、uh, strange poems, and stories like this, another unfinished work by Mr. Tolkien. It's a short book that you can get now. It's got a beautiful cover. It's got an illustration by Tolkien on there.、Uh, what appears to be three trees standing lonely in a slanting sunset, and it's、um, it's a story that's said to be the beginning of Tolkien's work as a writer in his own right, instead of just imitating、um, and practicing. His art as a storyteller, 
that's really the beginning of Tolkien um, as an author in his own right, as someone who's finding his own rhythm and his own steps as uh, the master that we know today, the master of fantasy, um, of adult fantasy. So it's it's fiction, it's fairy tales for grown-ups, and maybe some of the best stuff that's ever been written or sung or acted in the English language. I should say a little bit about the story. So the Kalevala itself is actually a selection of Finnish legends that was collected, uh, let's say, the start of the 19th century. It's not too important to dwell on the historical details, but it's interesting to know that it was collected at a time when there was a growing interest in homegrown, homespun literature of all kinds in many countries in Europe. Many countries were finding their own way as independent nations, and there was a movement, probably across the whole of Europe, a nationalist movement, but also a cultural movement, looking for the core of the history or the the soul or the feeling uh, or the poetry of each nation, of the people of the nation. Um, and I think it's something that's sadly lacking in the discussions these days as to what it really means to have a national identity. Um, one of the great stories that came out of the Second World War was of a group of students known as the White Rose, that's the name they gave themselves, they resisted the National Socialist government. Excuse me. If I fall silent for a second, it's because I'm taking a sip of ale, which, um, as we all know, releases the uh, poetry that's hidden in the human voice. So this White Rose movement uh, resisted the Nazis, and they did that in a cultural way. They didn't fight anybody. They didn't uh, sabotage anything, as far as I know. But what they did was spread a lot of flyers around. And um, some of their names, of course, are well known to history. Hans and Sophie Scholl, uh, brother and sister. Uh, Sophie Scholl died um, crying, Es lebe die Freiheit, long live freedom. And... Um, their flyers, which they distributed, were a call to that freedom. They weren't uh, only denouncing the evils that they saw around them. Of course, they did denounce that. But they also called on the German people to remember the great poets like Goethe, like Schiller, and to rediscover that spirit, um, the true spirit um, of their, their people, of their history, and to rise up out of that spirit and not out of a spirit of envy or greed or hatred. So around this time in history before the, the, the tragic uh, Second World War, um, an educated man uh, collected these uh, poems of Finland and basically they're the inspiration for everything that uh, Tolkien did afterwards. They're the inspiration behind a, a great many things actually. I think it's rather wonderful that a lot of it is about beer. Let me just quote one more piece. Please pay attention as you're listening to the rhythm of the words 
and have a listen if you can spot any rhymes. Can you hear any rhymes? Oh, thou ale, thou drink delicious. Let the drinkers not be moody. Urge the people on to singing. Let them shout with mouth all golden. Till our lords shall wonder at it, and our ladies ponder o'er it. For the songs already falter, and the joyous tongues are silenced when the ale is ill-concocted, and bad drink is set before us. Then the minstrels fail in singing, and the best of songs they sing not, and our cherished guests are silent, and the cuckoos call no longer. Yes, good ale leads to good songs and good stories. You'll notice there's no um, there's no rhymes in this in this poetry. It's all about the rhythm, and it's a very simple rhythm. This uh, poetry inspired a lot of English writers that you might not guess at. One of those English writers was uh, a fellow named Longfellow, and he wrote a very famous poem, or at the time it was famous. That poem is known as the Song of Hiawatha. I heard it uh, as a child under the name Hiawatha. It's pretty famous, in England at least. And have a listen to the rhythm of that poem. I'll just read you a tiny part because it's really, really long and it's pretty boring for today's uh, listeners. Out of childhood into manhood, now had grown my Hiawatha. Skilled in all the craft of hunters, learned in all the lore of old men, in all youthful sports and pastimes, in all manly arts and labours. Swift of foot was Hiawatha, he could shoot an arrow from him, and run forward with such fleetness that the arrow fell behind him. Strong of arm was Hiawatha, he could shoot ten arrows upward, shoot them with such strength and swiftness that the tenth had left the bowstring ere the first to earth had fallen. So we can hear that Longfellow was a bit of a smart ass, right? I mean, come on. He had mittens, minja, kawun, magic mittens made of deer skin. When upon his hands he wore them, he could smite the rocks asunder. He could grind them into powder. He had moccasins enchanted, magic moccasins of deer skin. When he bound them around his ankles, when upon his feet he tied them, each stride a mile he measured. So you can tell um, that this is the same poetry as the Kalevala. There's no rhymes. There's no need for any rhymes because the idea is that you've had a little uh, to drink and you're rocking back and forth maybe and you're kind of intoning these poems and the rhythm is just helping you to keep on moving. There's a lot of repetition and the rhythm is very simple, uh, so it's easy for everybody maybe to join in as well. Uh, let us clasp our hands together. So we're, we're probably reciting these poems together and telling these old stories. Now, uh, what, what kind of story is the Kalavala? Well, Longfellow actually has, has told a part of it already. There's this magical hero even as a child, he's amazingly proficient. Um, he's amazingly strong. He carries a bunch of magic items. Um, obviously, like, pretty high-level character from D&D. &D. Um, he can smash rocks. 
he can shoot 10 arrows and uh, they're all up in the air when the first one falls down and stuff like that. He probably has to roll a pretty high uh, score to do that one. That's also the story of uh, Kalavo in the Kalavala. He's a child as we meet him in the story, but he's already extremely uh, powerful, extremely successful and strong and so forth. Uh, when he's orphaned, and it's, it's basically a tragedy much along the lines of any Greek tragedy, a story of loss and betrayal. Kalavo is actually hated by this local, um, let's say a warlord or a kind of magician. And he's basically persecuted. They try and kill him a lot of times. Doesn't work. He has a magic dog. And this dog uh, protects him. And basically nobody can touch him. He tries to run away. But his enemies, who basically seem to hate him for no good reason, except that he's so cool, uh, they pursue him. And um, in the end, he flips out. And out of revenge, he uh, burns the whole place down, uses a whole bunch of magic curses, and uh, kills everybody with wild beasts and so on. Turns cows into beasts, uh, bears, I think it is. And those kill uh, everyone who, who's been pissing him off. So um, that would make a, a great uh, D&D campaign, Dungeons and Dragons, I guess. Uh, and that's probably the experience of many people who play this uh, wonderful adventure game. Uh, you might also notice some parallels with the book that I talked about last time. Um, there are some themes of revenge and violence in there and whether that can bring any kind of lasting happiness. Well, in this story, definitely not. Um, Colovo meets a beautiful girl in the forest and somehow uh, doesn't realize that it's his sister, Wanona. And actually, her again, her name appears in the story of Hiawatha, I think, with a different spelling. Her name means weeping, uh, crying. They fall in love, and one day um, she dies. Kalavo is inconsolable. He talks to his sword, of course. He has a... Maybe not a magic sword, but certainly a sword of legend, um, a mighty sword. He talks to his sword, and the sword says, Yes, I mean, you've used me to kill people who are innocent, so I'll be happy to kill you too. And he falls on his sword, so it's a, it's a terrible tragedy. Why, why did this um, pretty depressing story inspire everything? that Tolkien came up with in the end. Well, and also, why did it inspire Dungeons & Dragons? You might think that's an exaggeration. Have a listen to the names of some of the uh, Finnish legends and gods and mythological features that are mentioned in the Kalevala, where this story comes from. So, there's the nymph of blood and the veins, the spirit of the rudder, there's Moon and his children, uh, the sun and his. So the moon and the sun are male. Uh, Tolkien is keen to point out in this essay that they reprinted together with the story. 
There's a dim and awesome figure, the nearest approach to regal dignity, Taipo, god of the forest, and his spouse, Miliki. Well, Miliki is a goddess in Dungeons and Dragons, and the spelling of her name is exactly the same. Taipo, god of the forest, his spouse, Miliki, with their fairy-like son and daughter, Telavo, little maiden of the forest, clad in soft and beauteous garments, and her brother, Niriki, with his red cap and blue coat. There's Jumala, or Akko in the heavens, and Tuoni in the earth, or rather in some vague, dismal region beside a river of strange things. Ati and his wife Belmo, Pakkanan, the frost, Lempo, the god of evil, Kankahata, the goddess of weaving. Okay, so there's this list, a huge list. Oh, later comes Ilmatar, which is not a mile um, away from another one of the uh, Dungeons and Dragons gods. So, in the latest uh, book of Dungeons and Dragons lore, which I have right here, it's the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Let me read to you the entry for Miliki, Our Lady of the Forest, the Forest Queen. People rarely speak of Miliki, except in quiet forest spaces. Woodlands that evoke wonder are where she reigns supreme, but she's said to keep watch over good folk in any forest, no matter how dark and cruel. When children are lost in the woods, people beseech Miliki to protect them until they are found. So this is Miliki, the Finnish goddess. She's right there in Dungeons and Dragons in the Forgotten Realms campaign setting. I uh, was introduced to Dungeons & Dragons uh, as a teenager, probably in the best way. Um, I had no idea about this uh, concept of playing games, uh, role-playing games or or, uh, war games, but a cousin just said to me and um, my younger cousin one day on the train, I think it was, oh, let's play the adventure game. So he said, sure, sounds good. We drew a map on a piece of paper, was like a treasure island or something, and he said, okay, so you are here on the beach, and you can see this mountain, you can see a forest, um, and you're shipwrecked on this island, okay, what do you do? And that, in a nutshell, is Dungeons & Dragons, that's how it works. There's a story, um, typically a storyteller, you don't need to have one necessarily, but you agree on a story and you figure out what your characters are going to do. There's a bunch of rules which are more or less complicated for deciding what happens when there's a conflict of some kind. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's the game. So why am I interested in this book especially? Well, there's also my obsession with Tolkien um, that stretches way back to when I was a kid. But I promised I would talk somewhat about Uh, role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons. I'm dropping this name as many times as I can, but of course there's a lot of these games. And how does it relate to to books and the labyrinth um, of stories that are contained therein? Well, I think this notion of a shared storytelling is something that we sorely miss these days. And the fact that Dungeons & Dragons has made such a massive comeback in recent years is one sign of that. Being able to dig deep into these old myths and legends, hey, it's not only for the sake of these weird stories, and let's face it, they are pretty darn weird. 
Um, and it's not only for the sake of confronting uh, bad stuff um, that we, we know is real, but it's also for the sake of sharing the story and this sense of being on this adventure together is something that you can get from role-playing games, maybe more than any other enterprise. Um, it's like um, with your work colleagues or with your buddies of any type of uh, context. Of course, you've got some, you've got your shared stories, you've got your in jokes. But I'm amazed to find that having um, not really played any role-playing games for decades now, I can still remember those early attempts. Um, I read uh, a bunch of rule books for games, but I never played them. When I was a teenager, I think I played about twice, and I hardly understood what was going on. Uh, but I still remember the stories, uh, and they were just stories, just improvised uh, nonsense, right? <laughs> but what's different about those stories is that they were shared stories. They arose from a sort of common understanding and a common negotiation or a common uh, challenge that arose from those people being together at that time in that place that you just can't replicate with any amount of effort. So... I think that's why they stick in my mind. And having um, run across D&D when the wave of the 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons hit, I've got all the books, by the way, sitting on my uh, special D&D shelf, and I plan to work through a couple of them, uh, a couple more of them, when the time and the moment arises. But when I first uh, got back into this crazy hobby of um, adventure games RPGs again I can remember all the stories uh, like it was yesterday <laughs> and some of those um, some of those characters really stick with you even though they're pretty tropey and pretty um, you know they're pretty ridiculous characters sometimes but you find yourself investing a lot in these imaginary people you know uh, <laughs> So, um, something that around that time in the, in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, again later in the uh, 40s, 50s, was really stirring in many countries, uh, certainly in Tolkien's time. He, uh, he took this obsession with these old stories right through the war with him. Uh, he was still working on them, even though he had to go and fight. That thing that was stirring uh, hasn't gone away. It's only gotten bigger. And I think it's it's going to keep on stirring until we acknowledge what it's about. Now, at the start of this episode, I made a big deal out of saying that in the Finnish uh, tradition, there's this wonderful rhythm to the poetry and that's actually in the language itself. It's got these wonderful long words that sound like... They sound like music in themselves. English doesn't really have that. Instead, what we have is an old tradition of alliteration. And so 
I'd like to read you for comparison a poem. I promise it won't only be poems this episode. Uh, this is a poem from The Lord of the Rings, Book 3, The Return of the King. From dark Dunharrow, in the dim morning, with Thane and Captain rode Thengel's son. To Edoras he came, the ancient halls, of the Mark Wardens, mist enshrouded. Golden timbers were in gloom mantled. Farewell he bade to his free people, hearth and high seat and the hallowed places, where long had he feasted ere the light faded. Forth rode the king, fear behind him, fate before him, fealty kept he. Oaths he had taken, all fulfilled them. So in this poem, in this song, you can hear there's almost the same rhythm. It's four beats. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. But this time, it's not so much the rhythm, it's the sound of the the words, the start of the words. So listen again for the alliteration, the same sounds or the same letters. It's not perfectly... Um, some of these alliterations are not perfect, by the way. So in, in this one, he's got uh, oaths with an O and all alliterating. Oaths he had taken, all fulfilled them. Forth rode Theoden, five days and nights, east and onward, rode the Aeolingus, through Fold and Fenmarch and the Firian Wood. Six thousand spears to sunlending, Mundberg the mighty under Mindoluin, seeking city in the south kingdom. Foe beleaguered, fire encircled, doom drove them on, darkness took them, horse and horsemen, hoofbeats afar, sank into silence, so the songs tell us. And these songs uh, and poems blend seamlessly into the story that he's telling. It was indeed in deepening gloom that the king came to Edoras, although it was then but noon by the hour. There he halted only a short while, and strengthened his host by some three score of riders that came late to the weapon take. Weapon take is an old Anglo-Saxon term. It means just counting all the swords you got. Weapon take, count the swords. And um, Tolkien had really mastered his art by this point. He wasn't trying to imitate anybody like Longfellow was. Uh, he wasn't ripping anyone off. He used a lot of these old-fashioned words like weapon take, like, um, like Morris had done. William Morris is another famous English writer who used a lot of old-fashioned words. Uh, but unlike Morris, he wasn't trying to sound old-fashioned. His uh, riders of Rohan were really based on the Anglo-Saxons, the old English people, um, and they also had the same poetry. This poetry, some of it we actually have still. There's a book in the library um, of Exeter, uh, which is called the Exeter Book, and I've been there. I went to touch it, even though I wasn't really allowed to. They told me not to, but I did. Um, so my fingerprints are in that book now. That book has got the oldest poems in the English language. Here's one of them. I promise it won't be the whole thing, so it's not too long. It's about uh, some ancient heroes again. Wayland knew the wanderer's fate, 
that single-willed earl suffered agonies, sorrow and longing the sole companions of his ice-cold exile, anxieties bit, when Nithad put a knife to his hamstrings, laid clever bonds on the better man. That went by, this may too. In that poem he repeats, or whoever wrote it repeats this chorus, this, that went by, this may too. So, you know, life goes on, uh, and basically all of these tragic heroes come to a terrible ending, or they sort of have an awful time, and the poet says to himself, well, you know, life goes on, right? Uh, so that's kind of typically um, Anglo-Saxon and maybe also British, a little bit, attitude. Um, but the, these are the, the actual um, habits or the rhythms of this Anglo-Saxon feeling, this North Germanic feeling, because really it's also mixed in with a bit of Viking and a bit of Danish and a bit of everything. And Tolkien at this point had really taken his lesson. He didn't just copy anymore these ancient poems. The the Kalevo story especially um, interested him because it takes you right back to a time when people were not re just recreating the old pagan uh, legends or myths. And I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what it says in the book here. There's a bunch of essays which you, you might enjoy reading. They weren't just passing on some old fun stories from before Christian times um, and from before um, Europe got very organized and very kind of um, methodical. The cool thing about the Finnish stories is they're very immediate. The heroes are just totally fantastic. The magic is just right up in your face. Um, these are real fairy stories. They don't, uh, they don't try to be fancy. They're not sophisticated in any way. Uh, Tolkien says it much better in his essay. But um, they contain a little bit of wisdom. They contain a, a really childlike view of the world. Um, in fact, I think that's one of the inspirations that gave Tolkien the, the juice, the energy to keep going through all of his huge books. Um, Kalavo is a child who's been abused, basically. He's a sad boy, and that's why he's so angry at everyone. Um, that's pretty simple wisdom there. Don't beat your kids. Don't be too harsh on your kids, or they'll get angry later in life. And I think that's that's clear, right? But Kalavo makes it very immediate. He likes to burn things down and he likes to kill people. And when you sing it in this rhythmic way, then it really drives it home, right? So, um, <laughs> and the Finnish, the Finnish tradition really kept this alive um, and still does, as far as I know, even beyond uh, the Christian age, which I guess has kind of ended now, and in our kind of pretty uh, uptight modern world. The songs are songs of bygone ages, hidden words of ancient wisdom, songs which all the children sing not, all beyond men's comprehension. In these ages of unfortune, 
when the race is near its ending. So these songs moved Tolkien so much that he created this huge body of legends and then stories in which modern people could take part in the feeling of this legendary world, this legendary time. Because Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit and later Frodo, the, the story, uh, the protagonist of The Lord of the Rings, and the narrator of both, who remains kind of nameless, um, but it's clearly Tolkien himself. These are modern people interacting with this ancient world, or maybe interacting with the modern world in an ancient way, trying to actually uh, see things maybe more clearly the way that they really are by looking at them in this very old but very powerful way um, I wanted to read just one more poem from The Lord of the Rings if I could just to show how Tolkien left behind that sing-song uh, voice of the Kalevala and uses basically modern English so it's 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 normal language it's it's real language <laughs> he's not faking this so listen to how this sounds compared to all this old fantasy style stuff to the sea to the sea the white gulls are crying the wind is blowing and the white foam is flying west away west away the round sun is falling gray ship gray ship do you hear them calling the voices of my people that have gone before me I will leave, I will leave the woods that bore me, for our days are ending and our years failing. I will pass the wide waters, lonely sailing. Long are the waves on the last shore falling, sweet are the voices in the lost isle calling. In Eresea, in elven home, that no man can discover, where the leaves fall not, land of my people forever. So this is normal English, but he's clearly not talking about um, he's not talking about normal things. Uh, the narrator, the storyteller, has actually gone inside um, of this world. Let's call it that for now. Um, he's kind of gone into this uh, story in a way that's totally his own. He's not, uh, he's not pretending anymore. He's not copying someone's style, but this is really him and uh, the way that he sees the world. Or again, how about the, uh, the song of uh, Sam when he's in Mordor? In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there may be till cloudless night and swaying beaches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. So the elven stars that he's singing of in this song are the stars. But Tolkien's taken us so deep into this world uh, that he's singing to us on this storytelling night, um, that we see them as they are. They're these mysterious things. Um, 
and we want to know more and we want to interact with it somehow so this i think is this longing and this yearning that really um explodes in the different uh games and uh weird expressions of these games that have come out because um you can see it in almost all of the stories by the way uh from that whole period so i've got here in front of me a couple more of the books that e gary gygax mentions in his first uh dungeon master's guide i believe um the book dungeon master's guide was a big rule book uh for dungeons and dragons it was actually mainly kind of um gary gygax rambling um about how he thought this game should be um mixed up with some rules and some fun stuff and right at the back there was an appendix there were tons of appendices the last one maybe or maybe not even the last one was appendix n you can guess how many there were um and in appendix n we basically get a look at gary gygax's bookshelf um it's meant to be inspirational and educational reading it's basically like a list of all the cool stuff that gary gygax loved reading at the time um one of those books is the harold shay stories uh collected in the complete enchanter and then um the incomplete enchanter and then in the complete complete enchanter uh there was also a collection called the enchanter completed so that should now be clear right uh so there's a bunch of stories about um a lively and bored academic who goes time traveling and space traveling and actually goes into imaginary worlds by the mystical power of logic and reason uh so it's kind of sci-fi as well <laughs> um but listen to how one of the characters in one of his adventures speaks oh thou distant balta payat caught in zanadu's enchantments i am sure i know thy father since thy father's name was osvald so it's walter bayard by the way but the uh, the guy can't say it osvald of atlantic city and thy mother's name was linda of the new york city jacksons see i know of all thy people So he's met Lemminkainen who's one of the Finnish heroes of the Kalevala. Yes, um this Finnish stuff influenced basically everybody at the time and it still kind of influences people now. Uh Lemminkainen is one of the big heroes of the Finnish epic and he's basically a crazy playboy adventurer. Uh he just gets into a ton of trouble and doesn't seem to care. and then he dies and people are sad um and his name inspired one of Igari Gygax's famous uh, characters from Dungeons and Dragons who is the wizard Mordenkainen um who's kind of similar and so you can see that this uh very obscure book which basically a handful of people have read inspired everything to do with um sci-fi fantasy um it's really everywhere 
uh, gaming, the whole uh, modern computer gaming industry probably um, owes a lot to a Finnish story that people used to just tell around the fire. All of the Dungeons & Dragons games have got some of this inspiration in them. Another one of the Appendix N books, and I'll go more into these in another episode probably, another favorite is Three Hearts and Three Lions by Poole Anderson. And again, he's got a modern-day character. This time, it's a skeptical engineer with no interest in fairy tales. His name's Holger Carlson. So he turns out to be like um, a reincarnation or an avatar or a personification of Holger Dansk, who is, uh, by the way, um, a real-life uh, mythological hero and also gave his name to another Nazi resistance movement. Yes, there was a Danish resistance movement in the Second World War called Holgerdansk, just means Holger the Dane, and um, they fought against the Nazis. In this book, uh, Holger Carlsen fights against the Nazis, and then he's mysteriously taken off to fairyland. I'm not kidding, that's what happens. Um, and he discovers who he really is, and then he comes back to this universe um, and the author meets him at the end of the story. Here in this universe, the outward trappings were less picturesque, I suppose. A man in a boat escaping to help the allies. But his escape was necessary. In the light of what happened since, you may guess why. So Holger Danske arose to see that he did get free. I was weeks gone in that Carolingian world and returned to the same minute on this. Time is a funny thing. I had a devil of a time explaining why and how, but we were in a hurry and went our separate ways before the strain on my wits got too great. Since then I've been playing Holger Carlson. What else could I do? He shrugged. When I came to the knowledge of myself as the defender, I broke down the hosts of chaos in that world. Then, because, the sp because of the spell, I was drawn back to finish my task on this side. Once the crisis was passed in both worlds, the job done. Well, equilibrium had been re-established. There was no unbalanced force to send me across space-time, so I stayed. Holger is back in the real world as we know it. Um, and this is exactly what happens, of course, in a game of Dungeons & Dragons. You... Um, finish with your day job, you go home, or you meet at a friend's place, or even online or something, and you uh, begin to weave a strange tale of heroism, or perhaps uh, not-so-heroic deeds, and then when it's done, you go home. And I wonder if we can really say honestly there's not something of that missing in today's world. <laughs> um, it's important to know the difference between fantasy and reality. And I think if we delve a little deeper into what we call fantasy, we might find ourselves staring more intently and more penetratingly into reality. So I hope you'll join me next time uh, as we dig even deeper into this rabbit hole Got a couple more books here I didn't get into. Michael Moorcock I want to touch on next time. 
but please feel free to hit me up on Twitter and suggest anything you'd like me to look at. Yeah, as long as it's to do with adventure, then I'm game. <laughs> it's Michael from Germany. It's Sauce the Rope on Twitter. Uh, send me a tweet and tell me how you like this podcast. Over and out. Thank you.